Well, as Ron said earlier in the service, this is our prayer emphasis week, and often that means that we do a special message on prayer. We usually break from whatever series we're in and look to a passage that focuses on prayer, but as you know, we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and we're now to the point of looking at chapter 3. Chapter 3, at the beginning here, doesn't say anything specifically about prayer so much, but I think we're going to use this pat. No, I know that we're going to use this passage as our focus for Prayer Emphasis Week today. A passage that doesn't mention prayer, but I think by focusing on the realities that are in Christ, that show us a desire to commune with Him, I think our prayers will be affected. Our prayer lives will be empowered. Or I could put it this way, the reason for looking at Colossians 3 this morning, even though it's Prayer Emphasis Week, is not so much to stick to the same series that we're in, but, but in the providence of God, these few verses at the beginning of Colossians 3 really address why we're prayerless, what we need. You see, I think our prayerlessness is not due to the fact that Christians have somehow forgotten to pray. I think we all know that we're supposed to pray. I think we all know that we're supposed to pray more. I think we all know that we're supposed to grow in how we pray. I don't even think it's so much that we don't know how to pray. I think most of us have heard messages on, on how to pray. I think we all know Jesus' example of, you know, here's a good prayer. I think we've all heard people pray pretty well. And we can, we can hear a good prayer and say, I, I want my prayers to be like that. I want to be more like that. He seems to tie biblical ideas to, to God and to heaven. And I want to do that. So why don't we pray? Well, I, I think in large part we pray less than we should. I think our prayers are weaker than they should be because we don't see prayer for what it is. We see it as a religious duty. Prayer is hard for us because we wonder at times what it accomplishes. Because it merely feels human. Because sometimes it feels like we're simply talking to ourselves Sometimes it feels, at least we wonder whether he hears, whether he cares, whether it does anything, whether it changes anything, whether even our prayers of adoration matter much. He already knows how great he is better than I do. Why does he need me to tell him? And I think prayer is hard because we're surprised that it's hard. I think sometimes it feels just like it's earthly and we're just talking to ourselves and we're surprised by this. Well, I want to talk today about some new glorious spiritual realities that are in Christ and prayer being one of the things that is an experience of that new spiritual reality we have in Christ. Hopefully this will motivate us to pray more than just a message on prayer or another message which tries to tell you how to pray. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1 of Colossians. There Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him 
in glory. I think there are three sections to trying to understand these first four verses. The first is this. We need to see the new hidden realities in Christ. We need to see what he says we have already in Christ. Notice the if first in verse 1. Maybe we should start out by treating this whole exercise as a bit of a question. Is Colossians 3 describing you, these first four verses describing realities that you've come to know and experience, even in a small way, even in a human way, even in a foreshadowy way, even just a taste of what's to come? But have you tasted? He says, if you've been raised with Christ, have you? I'll come back to that a little bit later, ask that question again. One of these realities we already said is that we've been raised. We've been raised. That's one of the new hidden realities Christians have in Christ. In verse 1, we've been raised with Christ, which means Christ has been raised in the resurrection and, and in his ascension. He's now, at the end of verse 1, it says, seated at the right hand of God. What's that mean, the right hand? That's the place of prominence, privilege. It's the right hand of the throne of God. It means he's prince, he's king, he's co-ruler with God himself because he is God himself. And that's not that amazing if you know other parts of the Bible, if you know who Jesus really is. It's not that amazing that the Son of God is at the right hand of God. It's not that amazing that the King of kings and Lord of lords is at the right hand of the throne of God. What's amazing is that we're seated there with him. Ephesians 2 tells us that. In verse 4, Paul says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. We're seated with Christ. We are seated at the right hand of the throne of God with Jesus because of who Jesus is. And this is now. It's not something that will happen necessarily. Paul's putting it here in Colossians 3, in Ephesians 2, in past tense. You have been raised with Christ. It's already happened. There's been a resurrection that's taken place. When Christ rose from the dead, when he ascended on high, well, he gives us a gorgeous picture of being alive and fully alive. And now, in a sense, we're there even though we're here. We'll come back to that tension of being here and yet there throughout our study of Colossians 3 this morning. Notice this. He says in verse 3, we died. Verse 1 says we've been raised. Verse 3 says we died. Now, Paul's already used that kind of symbolism here in the book of Colossians. That death and resurrection are pictured in our baptism, he says in Colossians 2. Look at verse 12. Colossians 2 says, having been buried with him, with Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He speaks similarly in Romans 6. He says, should we keep on sinning since grace is so great? Should grace just keep growing and we want it to grow so we'll sin some more? No. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul's saying there's a double symbolism of death and resurrection in our baptism. He's saying on the one hand, it portrays being united through faith to Christ's death and resurrection. Baptism essentially says, I have no hope but what Christ did. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. But it also pictures our own spiritual death and resurrection. Our old self has been buried. There's been a resurrection of a new life in Christ. We've been raised. We died. And then he says we're hidden with Christ in God. You see that phrase in verse 3? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, what does that mean? I think he means that our true life is hidden. It's not seen. I don't think he means that Christian faith shouldn't be visible. I don't think he means that our faith shouldn't be public. I mean, there are all kinds of passages that tell us that our, our faith should be, should be public and vocal and visible. Right? Jesus said, light your candle, put it on a hill, don't put it under a, a basket, let it shine, be a city that's shining to the rest of the world. No, he's not saying that our faith shouldn't be visible. When he says that we're hidden in Christ, what he really means is that the power of our life, the true communion with him in our life, the, the true heartbeat of our life in a sense, isn't seen to the world. We can say to the world as Christians, we say to you if you're here and you're not a Christian, we think we can say there's something going on that you can't see. There's going, something going on in our singing that you can't see. There's something going on in our prayers that you can't see. There's something going on in our thoughts and our minds, our hearts, our affections, our aspirations that you can't see. There are a million blessings and spiritual realities that are not of this world, that can't be seen, can't be graphed, can't be put to a litmus test. Paul's saying, my real life is hidden. Man, can you imagine how different life would be if we really got a hold of this? If we really believed this? That my real life is a hidden life. My real life isn't the one that you see, so it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter whether you condemn or accept. All the things that influence our, our fear of people perhaps would be transformed if we really believed our real life is hidden in Christ. And in him, we have acceptance and freedom and joy. Can you imagine if teenagers got a hold of this? And they believed that their real life wasn't according to their genes. I mean, literal denim. I don't mean genes with a G. You know, it's not according to your iPod. It's not according to your friends. It's not according to who's cool and who's not. It's not according to what they think. It's, it's in Christ, even though they don't see it. Our life is hidden. He also says our life is Christ. Christ is our life in verse 4. That's our life. He's the sum total of our life. He's the aim of our life. So that all our living is a living in him. At least it's supposed to be. Paul says in Philippians 1, 
For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I think we like the dying is gain part a little bit more. We like that we could die and it would be a good thing. We can die and we'll be okay. Dying in Christ is gain. Amen. Well, Paul says part and parcel of dying, being gain in Christ is my living is Christ. He's the banner over my life, my, my goals, my aspirations, my dreams, my wants, my pursuits, my tasks, whatever else I'm doing, I'm doing it in him and for him and through him. Christ is our life and glory awaits. Verse four, when Christ, who is your life, will appear, you will appear with him in glory. He will appear. He will come again. He will fix what is broken. He's already started. It's already come in principle. There's a a taste of what's to come in the new heaven and the new earth where Christ's kingdom is in our midst. We've already tasted and seen that he's good and that's supposed to grow. And one day it will be final and complete. 2 Thessalonians 1 talks about this where it says one day Christ will come back and It'll be a fearful day for those who are outside of him, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when he comes back, he'll be glorified in his saints. He'll be marveled at by all those who believe in him. They long for the glorious appearing of their Lord and Savior. They long for his rule to be visible, for it to be complete, for it to be universal. For to overrule their hearts as well. For him to finally conquer sin in their own will. In their own living. So remember the if back in Colossians 3 verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ. Have you? Have you been raised with Christ? Have you died to him? Died in him to sin? Is your life hidden in Christ? Is Christ your life? Not perfectly so, but genuinely so, earnestly so. Is the return of Christ your hope? And will the Lord find faith when he comes back? Will he find faith in your heart? Well, if not, then the rest of what Paul says, almost of this whole book, in a sense, doesn't apply to you. It doesn't apply to you, at least not yet. Because we can't put the, the, the cart before the horse. Right? Paul's going to go on in the rest of this book to talk about what Christians do now. Those who have this reality in Christ, these spiritual realities in him, are going to live a certain way and have certain responsibilities. But if you put the cart before the horse, the wrong thing's pulling, right? You can't, you can't have your deeds pulling Christ along. But Christ pulls us into a new life. We can put it this way, it's not faith plus good works that leads to acceptance with him or forgiveness from him. It's forgiveness with him through faith that leads to good works. We do good because he's forgiven, not so that he'll forgive. So if you don't know that forgiveness and if these realities we've already looked at at verse 1 Verse 2, verse 3, these things aren't yours yet, then let them be yours. Let them be yours today. Through faith, believe Christ has died in your place to take your punishment, to give you a righteousness that you don't have, to give it 
as grace, not as something you earn. Call out to him today. Confess that. And these realities will be yours. And if they are yours, well then, notice this second section. What does he say to do about it? Well, he says, further seek the new hidden realities in Christ. This first section, he said, you already have them. Right? That was his point. You've already been raised. You've already have Christ as your life. You already have Christ as your returning hope. But keep seeking it. Further seek it. There are two phrases here. Verse 1 says, seek the things above. Verse 2 says, set your mind on things above. Let's start with that second phrase. Set your mind on things above. Now, why does he say above here? I want to take some time on this one word, above, because it could lead us down the wrong path if we're not careful. I mean, one question I had as I read this this week, preparing for this message, is whether Paul just commended something to us that he condemned at the end of chapter 2. We saw last week. At the end of chapter 2, we saw... We can back up to verse 18, where Paul condemns asceticism and mysticism. Two beliefs that were rooted in what we call dualism. That the material world is evil, and you've got to escape it. The spiritual realm, this immaterial world, is what's right and good and holy and just. And, and that's where it's at, and that's how you get there. Right? Well, Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, when he says, seek heavenly things, not earthly things, he's not commending asceticism. He's not commending mysticism. He's not commending dualism, that earthly things are bad and spiritual things are good. He's also not commending escapism, where we think, okay, whatever's to come, that's it. And so just, just escape in the meantime. Just get Bible, get prayer, go to a monastery until he comes back. He's not calling us to escapism or merely a waiting room until Jesus returns. No, what Paul's talking about, both at the end of chapter 2, as he critiques this, this fake religion, and as he commends to us what's biblical and right in chapter 3, he's talking about what we might call dual citizenship. Philippians 3 says, that we have a heavenly citizenship. Our citizenship's now in heaven. We're not there, but in a sense, we're there. In a sense, that's home. You've never fully been there, but that's home. That's what we long for, and that's where we're going. In the meantime, we don't escape. In the meantime, we don't just coast. In the meantime, we don't just moan. No, we do things, right? It's all over Scripture to, you know, to work, you're supposed to work. You're supposed to serve people. You're supposed to care for your community, right? You're to be salt and light in this world. You're, you're probably to vote a certain way, whatever you think that is. But you're to vote, right? You're to be a participant in this world because you have a citizenship down here. You're supposed to pay taxes, Paul says in Romans 13, and, and Jesus said as well. But Paul's talking about seeking things Above, not like they're spatial, not like it's a, a place that's up, 
so that we just look upward all the time or that we get our heads in the clouds or we just keep imagining heaven or that he wants us to study heaven so, so much. I mean, we're supposed to study heaven, I'm sure, but, but he's not saying that that's all we should do. He's talking about two different realms. He's talking about two different priorities. He's talking about two different worlds. When we think of above, we think heaven, clouds, up there, where we're going someday, earth, stuff. I don't know, all the stuff you have to do until then. Well, he's not giving that kind of distinction. In fact, what I think he's doing here when he says the word above, he's really using it like we use the word next. We think of above as not a timeline issue, right? Timelines are always horizontal for us. Isn't that funny? Why? That's a cultural thing, isn't it? Right? For them, in Paul's culture, and Hebrew culture, it seems like things above weren't just geographic. They were also chronological. Things above are things to come. Paul's talking about seeking that which is to come. He's talking about the new heaven and the new earth, where one day heaven and earth become one. He's saying, set your mind on the new hidden realities which are in Christ, and they're yours in Christ now, but they will be brought to their fullest reality at his coming. There's a phrase we use for this often around here. Now and what? Not yet. Isn't this a classic example of now and not yet? The kingdom's now. It's here. We have heavenly realities right now. We've already been raised up with him. We're there with him. In a sense, not yet. In a big sense, not yet. So we have it, but we set our mind on it. And when he says set our mind on it, I don't think he, I don't know, I don't think he has something so passive in mind like set your mind on kind of sounds like. I think he's saying grab hold of this, cling tightly to it, transfix your thoughts and affections on this. Not just your thoughts, your affections and your will and your hopes and and your identity, your confidence. Let your whole life be one wrapped up in this, transfixed on, grabbing hold to what's to come. Seek it, he says. Set your mind on it, then Back in verse 1, he said, seek the things which are above. Literally, keep seeking it. Don't stop. Don't don't stop doing it. Even for a bit, keep seeking it. Keep seeking him. And he says, don't set your mind or don't seek, either verb will do, the things that are on the earth. Don't seek things on the earth. What does he mean? It sounds like Jesus in Luke chapter 12 where he says we're not supposed to seek what we eat. We're not supposed to seek what we drink. We're not supposed to worry about these things. He says that's what the unbelievers are like. That's what Gentiles or the nations are like. They seek after these things. They worry about these things. Now, again, Jesus isn't saying here, don't work. Just wait for food and money to come. It'll come. He isn't saying that. No, again, you compare Scripture with Scripture, and you see there's stuff on how to work, and there's stuff on how to pay people, and and how to care for your workers if you're a boss. What he's saying is let all your seeking be a seeking of the kingdom. Let that be first and foremost. And whatever else you seek, seek the kingdom. Don't be like those who seek food as an end in itself, 
seek food as an opportunity for praise to God and provision for family and thanks to him. In 1 John 2, you find these convicting words that we're not to love the world nor the things that are in the world. In fact, John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This verse doesn't tell us that we shouldn't love non-Christians. Of course, we're supposed to. Jesus did. It doesn't tell us don't love kids because they're of this world or don't thank God for your job because it's of this world. No. no. What it means is don't be tied to it. Don't love the world. Don't love the things in it. Love what's to come. Jeremiah Burroughs is a, is a Puritan in the 17th century. He wrote a book on, well, on Philippians 3 and here in Colossians 3, this thing of earthly-mindedness and heavenly-mindedness. Jeremiah Burroughs gives eight different things that earthly-mindedness could be. Let me list them for you. He says, earthly-mindedness is when men look upon earthly things as the greatest things. When their choicest thoughts are busied with earthly thoughts. When their hearts cleave to the earth. When their hearts are filled with distracted cares, worries about the world. When the greatest endeavors of their lives are about earthly things. That's earthly mindedness. When they seek an earthly thing for itself and not in subordination to some higher and godly good. Or when they're earthly in spiritual things. Or similarly, when they conceive of the most heavenly truth in an earthly way. Well, each one of those could get unpacked and discussed and talked about. And of course, the book does that. That's simply a a section from the table of contents. But it gives us something of an example for our own investigation our own thought about what is earthly mindedness what is heavenly mindedness what is God calling us to here in Colossians 3 yes set your mind on things above seek the things above we should ask ourselves how and we should it says here live in a heavenly identity verse 3 says you have died and your life is hidden in Christ We've been dead to sin. Sin has been killed in us, and yet it's still a fight, right? We still have to mortify the deeds of the flesh, Paul said in Romans 8, 13. So we have to live out that deadness. We have to be dead to what we're dead to and be alive to what we're alive to. We have to feel the security of that kind of identity, of a life that's hidden with Christ in God. Live in that realm. Live out those realities. Grow in them. And be watchful and eager for his return in the meantime. Because it'll be hard. You won't do it so well. and You'll be frustrated. And there are a lot of thorns and thistles down here in this cursed world. So be watchful and eager for the day when he appears and we will appear with him in glory. So pray with Moses. Lord, teach us to number our days so that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom. Lord, help me to remember that it's short down here. Lord, help me to know that whatever doesn't get fixed down here will get fixed in the new heaven and the new earth. Be watchful. Be eager for his return. Now, 
We've talked about what we have in Christ. We've talked about what we do now that we have these things in Christ. We keep seeking them. Now let me give you some specific examples. Third section in your notes, some specific examples of an upward-seeking life. And remember, as I say upward, I don't mean geography necessarily. I mean that life that is ours now in Christ in principle and will be ours one day in full consummation. He's talking about Christ's kingdom here, that now and not yet reality, and that's what we want, right? We want to keep seeking it. We want to see his kingdom grow or spread. So what ways in which, what, what ways can we do this? How do we see the reality of his coming and goodness and wonderful promises, the realities we have in Christ? Let me give you eight things. I know you're out of space in your sermon notes page. This will be quick. You can write them on the communication card if you're not using that this morning. Um, I'll just run through some quick examples to help us think through this thing of upward-mindedness or what it means to set our mind on things above. How do we do it? Well, one, worship. We worship, and we long for worship. Sunday morning, coming together as God's people and sensing that God is in our midst, believing that he's in our midst, singing together. These things that we do on Sunday morning aren't the sum total of our corporate worship. We just talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about the different contexts for worship. This is one of those. But this isn't one of the insignificant ones. This is a significant thing, right? Meeting together and wanting more of him. That's why we come together. Yes, because it's commanded. Yes, because we should. Yes, because your wife won't let you stay home. But hopefully we come together because we want more of him, hungering more for his presence. Christians, those who set their minds on things above, secondly, hunger for his words. They hunger for the Bible. They hunger for scripture. That's part of why we come together in corporate worship. The Bible is a means of getting more of him. I hope that your Bible reading occasionally taps into that reality, which is why we read the Bible, which is the reality of Scripture to God's people. In other words, the Bible is not just a mere religious duty that we should do and check off and feel better about ourselves and it's not just instruction don't forget these do's and don't forget these don'ts and you got to keep going back to it so you remember them all that's part of it but part of why we go to the word a huge part why we go to the word second corinthians 3 tells us is to behold christ to stare at him to see him he's revealed himself in words and we got to stare at those words until His face becomes more clear and more glorious and more near to us. In John 5, you get a glimpse of why this is so important. In John 5, verse 39, Jesus says to the Pharisees that they search the scriptures because they think that in them they have eternal life. That's one of those verses that makes you scratch your head. You think, doesn't the Bible contain eternal life? Were they wrong in going to the scriptures to get eternal life? Well, apparently there was a bit of superstition that I think we know pretty well in our own day. I'm blessed. I'm more near to heaven. 
simply by the number of words I look at. You see, the Word of God isn't an end in itself. It's a magnifying glass through which we see Christ. That's what we want. We go to the Word to see Him. And these Pharisees apparently were using Scripture as an end in itself. Reading Scripture to be saved. Reading Scripture to be blessed. I wonder if we read Scripture that way instead of getting more of Him. third way in which we set our mind on things above is to pray. We go to Him in prayer. And everything we said about His Word and why we go to the Word could be said of prayer. Prayer is a means of getting more of Him. Prayer is not just a religious duty. It's not just something to tick off the list. It's not just something that that gets what we want. You see, if the Bible is a magnifying glass that's supposed to show us Christ. And prayer is a means of getting us Christ as well, of communing with him. But I fear that sometimes my prayer requests are magnifying glasses to my wants, to my perceived needs, to my ideals. Oh, we can pray for whatever we want if it's not sin, right? You have not because you ask not. But we have to ask bigger questions of why we want that. Why we're praying for this thing to go away, this thing to change, rather than praying for more of Christ in the midst of this or that circumstance. You see? It may be that our prayer requests sometimes are magnifying glasses to our hearts and our wants and not a magnifying glass to getting more of Him. Come back to prayer in just a, a minute here. Fourth, we set our mind on things above by, like we talked about already, looking for and longing for his return, by watching for his coming. In Philippians 3, when it says that our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven, it quickly follows it up. From it, we await a Savior. We await a Savior. He'll fix our bodies. He'll fix what's wrong in this world. He will Come in power and glory someday. Think on, look for, long for his return as a way of setting your mind on things above. Also, fifth, see, to live in his ways, to do what he says, to follow his ethic, if you like, however you want to put it. Notice in verse 5, Paul from here will go on to give a whole list of things that Christians shouldn't do, things that Christians shouldn't pursue anymore, things that now they should pursue and do. He'll get into some specifics here. Part of setting our mind on things above is actual conduct, avoiding earthly things. Sixth, part of how they do this is to sanctify all of life, to see his goodness and presence in everything, right? To believe that we're now his dwelling place, his temple, So whatever we do and wherever we go, his temple is there in our midst. Another one of those spiritual realities that's there, we just don't see it. We acknowledge it, we pursue it. One day we'll have it to the full. Right now we don't see it. But we're to live it out still the same. It means simply what Psalm 16.8 says. I have set the Lord continually before me. 
right? So that our getting up or going down or doing this or doing that, whatever we do throughout the day, let it be done in a spirit of setting the Lord before us. Seventh, we set our mind on things above by promoting these things in others. Paul will go on in chapter 3 to talk about otherness, right? Each other, the one another. He'll say we should sing to one another with thanksgiving and encouragement. We should admonish one another, care for one another, live out unity and peace. We have it in Christ. In eighth, we can also say this, to set our mind on things above, at least now, on earth means to wrestle through our heartaches and trials in a Godward way. To cast our burdens on him as we should. To put it under the banner of his coming. To put it in the bucket of what's to come. To hope in that. Now these eight things are all foretastes, you could say, of the age to come. Now, in the age to come, we won't have heartaches and trials. We'll just trust him. So when we have heartaches and trials now, it's an opportunity to trust him. All of these things, prayer and thinking on his return and living his ways and seeing all of life is done to his glory and promoting these things in others, these have already come to us in principle. They're ours and they're samplings of the new heaven and the new earth. We will have these things to the full. One day, and then we will have them forever. You say, well, I don't do them so well now. I know. I know two responses to that. One would be, it's possible you're not a Christian, right? And it's possible that this sort of mindedness, this mindset that Paul's talking about is foreign to you. And it's foreign to you because you haven't been raised with him. You're not in him. Your life isn't hidden with him. You you haven't yet been redeemed and reconciled. You haven't yet put your faith in Christ. But either way, Christian or not, here's what's great. The hope is the same. You see, for those who aren't yet Christians and and feel like you're talking about something so otherworldly, I'm never there. I never do that. And for Christians who hear this list and feel like, I'm rarely there. I don't know if I'm enough there. I don't know if this is really spiritual. I do these kind of things occasionally, and I forget so much. What hope is there for me? Christ. The same for both. Non-Christian and Christian. Our hope is Christ and what he has done Set your mind on things above, for he has already risen. Risen from what? Risen from the grave. Why was he in the grave? Because he died. He died in our place. He sat down. That language that Christ is seated is so rich with Old Testament language there. The Old Testament priest, Hebrews 10, says they never sat down. They kept making sacrifices. There was no chair there in the tabernacle or the temple. But when Christ made his once-for-all sacrifice, he sat down, it says. It's finished. His work is done. He is now seated and now is on high as our faithful high priest interceding for us still. 
So one way we seek things above where Christ is seated is to rest in his gospel. Every time we get to taste of assurance, taste that he's good, that he's merciful, it's a foretaste of the security that's to come in the new heaven and the new earth. We already have that inheritance. We already have that adoption. We already have the signal of his love. Christ died for us. We already have victory. He rose from the dead. Oh, I know, it hasn't come to its, to its visible consummation, but it will. Until then, live in it. Let me wrap this up by saying this. In short, Colossians 3 is telling us that when the gospel comes to us, it gives us new eyes. New eyes to see another realm. Remember when Frodo put on the ring? What happened? Oh, I'm sure there are like seven things that happened, Lord of the Ring nerds. You know, I'm sure I'll I'll hear them all afterwards, right? Um, you better get them all. You better, no, it was also this. And, okay, let, let me just answer it for myself. I'll answer my own question and tell you what I have specifically in mind about what happens when Frodo puts on the ring. Remember, at least in one part, one angle of this is that he sees things he didn't see. It's a new realm. It was there, but it was hidden. Right? Now, Frodo's realm, what he sees with the ring is... His darkness. He sees the darkness of the world around him in the spiritual realm. But in Christ, our ring allows us to see something of the glory to come. Prayer is simply acknowledging that there is another realm. Prayer is simply acknowledging that Christ is already on his throne. Prayer is simply believing that he is good, that he does care that he does hear, that he is near, or rather that we are near because we are with him at the right hand of the throne of God in a spiritual realm. He died and so he'll do us good. We go to him in prayer because we can cast burdens on him. We go to him in prayer because this isn't it. He's coming again and he will fix it all. And it's hard because we're not there yet. That's why it's hard. But put on the ring of prayer, brothers and sisters. Put on the ring of his word and see another realm. Put on the ring of worship that will be ours one day to the fullest, the new heaven, the new earth. Put on the the ring and keep it on until the king returns. Because he's coming. Simply put, prayer is a foretaste of the consummation of the ages. Prayer feels hard because it's not the consummation yet. But prayer is a sampling, a foretaste of what's to come in the new heaven and the new earth. We could not do anything more lofty, more real, more glorious. 
May God give us eyes to see it.